Welcome to the Western Bell podcast series with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of the series is to offer something useful for those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice on the spiritual path. New talks are posted twice each month. The content of the talks is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled Conscience and the Law of Identification. The talk was given by Red Hawk on May 20th, 2023, via Zoom. Red Hawk is an acclaimed poet and the author of 12 books, including Self-Observation, Self-Remembering, The Way of the Wise Woman, and Return to the Mother. In this talk, he considers that all the problems of the human race are the result of identification and that identification restricts consciousness or love. Red Hawk talks about his experience of conscience, which always points us in the direction of love, which awakens through self-observation and self-remembering, and which he sees as the will of God in human beings. Principles of the Gurdjieff work, such as centers and octaves, are discussed during the talk, and reference is made to Gurdjieff's book Beelzebub's tales to his grandson, and to masters in different traditions. If there is benefit in this talk for you, please consider sharing the link to it or writing a review on social media or on one of the podcast platforms. Red Hawk. Thanks so much, all of you in attendance tonight, for being with me here. We're going to have a conversation. And I'm very grateful for the chance to speak with you about a topic which is very dear to me and important. When there are gaps in the conversation and silences, that's a good time for you to come back to yourself, to sense your breath and your body and to be present, just to be still. I'm a student in a spiritual school. The teacher in that school is Mr. Lee Lazowick. His master is Yogi Ram Sarat Kumar, who is the head of our school and our lineage. And I'm being trained in that school. That training is ongoing. So one of the things that we are taught in this school, and it's an ancient practice, so it's not just limited to this school, but it's a practice in many spiritual schools throughout history is that we begin a Dharma talk with invocational process. And that invocation is the invoking of one of the names of God. Now, the names of God are the names of any human being who is God-realized, who is awakened, enlightened, and God-realized. So, Jesus was a God realized master, and his name is one of the names of God Buddha, Krishna, Lao Tzu, Ramakrishna, Yogi Ram Sarat Kumar, and there are many others. But in this school, we establish the space for a Dharma talk, and it's called a chamber. And we establish that space and empower that space by the chanting of one of those names. Yogi Ram Surat Kumar, 
Yogi Ram Surat Kumar, Yogi Ram Surat Kumar, Jaya Guru Raya. Jai Shri Kepali, Yogi Ram Surat Kumar, Guru Maharaj, Yogi Ram Surat Kumar, Yogi Rama Surat Kumar, Yogi Rama Surat Kumar, Yogi Rama Surat Kumar, Jai Guru Raya. We do this invocation according to the law of invocation, which was taught to us by that good master Jesus, who voiced it this way, where two or more are gathered in my name, there will I be also. So this law obliges those beings whose names are invoked to appear in the chamber as an energetic force, as a source of help, as a source of food for those who are in the chamber, and at the same time to be fed by the work of those in the chamber. So what we have now is an empowered, spiritual, dynamic, invocational chamber in which there is real help for us, those of us who wish to awaken, who wish to know ourselves, those of us who wish to learn how to be in real relationship with others, with ourselves, with the teacher, with God, with the earth. So help is available now. And so I want to begin with a caveat, which is that the speaker is a hopeless idiot, a ordinary practitioner, not a guru, not a master, not a teacher, but like yourself, an ordinary practitioner, capable of error. So you must not believe what the speaker says. Don't trust me. If something is said in the chamber which creates a resonance in your heart, then the thing for you to do is to begin to investigate that, that very thing, to verify for yourself the truth of it through your own direct experience. That way you won't be fooled by some false teacher or some mistaken teaching. Your own personal experience will be true and will show you the truth or the falseness of anything which is said. And my effort during this time together is to, as often and as long as I can, to remain with my attention grounded in the body, in the abdominal area, to move attention out of the head brain and down into the body, into the bodily sensation, into the sensation of the breath, and to trust that with attention there, there is a greater intelligence at work. So I invite you tonight not just to listen which is from the head brain, but to hear, which is from the whole of me, with attention down low, grounded in the body, with different ears, which is why I think one of the reasons when the good Master Jesus 
gave Dharma talks, he always ended by saying, let those who have ears to hear, hear. Let those who have eyes to see, see. And the hearing he spoke of was with different ears. It was with an intelligence which is grounded in the body. The title of this talk is Conscience and the Law of Identification. I want to speak about those two things because they are the most important things in my life. After more than 40 years of spiritual practice, it has boiled down to those two things, conscience and identification. And I might say about identification that my experience and my understanding is that every single problem that the human species is faced with on this planet is the result of identification. And that the only hope for me to awaken and to escape the power of identification, to loosen its hold, is to awaken conscience in myself and to empower conscience to guide me. So the quote from my teacher, Lee Lozowick, Mr. Lee, on the website announcing this talk, goes like this, quote, Although a lot is happening in our lives, it begins to dawn on us that we're not making the breakthrough. What gives? What's the problem? Some ask. There's only ever one problem. An unwillingness to radically confront the need to cease all identification. Unquote. I'm going to read the last part of that quote again because it's worth repeating. And if I can hear from down in my body, not just listen, but hear, that is to receive this teaching in a different part of me. So it's not just the mind cataloging, categorizing, placing it in the memory files and moving on to the next thing, but to really Receive openly, open-heartedly. Here's the last part of the quote again. Quote, there's only ever one problem, an unwillingness to radically confront the need to cease all identification. Unquote. And I can say that after more than 40 years of practice of self-remembering and self-observation, it is boiled down to that. Identification is the problem. And in me, conscience is the solution. And they are not in opposition to each other. It's not identification in opposition to conscience. What I have come to realize for myself is that conscience absorbs identification. Conscience allows and subsumes identification. And slowly, slowly, it's conscience which begins to melt the hold that identification has on me. So there's only ever one problem. All the other problems that I have been faced with in my life are now very clearly the result of identification. So I'm going to read a poem this is from the book Return to the Mother, written by Red Hawk. 
you want to know more about my books or all the other books available from Home Press, H-O-H-M-Press.com. Return to the Mother. It's a collection of 58 sutras, all 16 lines, and the title of each of these 58 sutras is a quote from Lao Tzu's Tao Te Ching. And the resulting 16-line poem is a response to that teaching of Lao Tzu's. So you could say that the book is a call and response over thousands of years. Lao Tzu speaks and I respond. This is poem number 32. Lao Tzu says, To know the way, understand the great within yourself. I'll repeat, to know the way. Understand the great within yourself. A hen cannot give birth to a dog, nor can a stone placed in the soil produce a tree. Each thing births that which is in its own image, like itself, and of its own nature. We come from greatness, and we return from whence we came. Greatness can only birth greatness. This is the law. The mind cannot comprehend greatness because it is a recoil into fear, a strategy to avoid greatness. Fear is the absence of greatness. Mind is blind to all but its own contents. Thus, remember yourself and know greatness. And because greatness is maybe a little difficult to grasp, not sure what that might mean. I'm going to reread part of this poem, and I'm going to substitute for the word greatness, love. We come from love, and we return from whence we came. Love can only birth love. This is the law. The mind cannot comprehend love because it is a recoil into fear, a strategy to avoid love. Fear is the absence of love. Mind is blind to all but its own contents. Thus, remember yourself and know love. One of the most profound and impactful teachings from the good master Jesus for me is the teaching, God is love. And what that means is love and God are the same. What I have understood from my own experience is that love is the language which our Creator uses to communicate with us its creation. Love is the way our Creator manifests in the human reality. We come from love. Therefore, our true nature is love. The primary aim of self-observation is to reveal to me that in me which blocks my true nature, love, from manifesting, always, everywhere, with everyone, in all situations. Self-observation reveals to me what blocks my true nature from manifesting, always and everywhere. The only thing which blocks love is identification. For the human species, identification is the problem. 
lack of conscience is the reason the human species finds itself in the trouble it's in now. There is a handmaiden to identification, which is imagination. Identification and imagination go hand in hand. First identification, and immediately imagination takes hold. And I am lost to reality, lost to the present. Therefore, I'm lost to love. So, what I've proposed is that the problem we are faced with as practitioners, as human beings, as people who wish to know love, to love and be loved, to be in real relationship with God, with other humans, with the earth, with all beings, the real problem is identification. Now, Mr. Gurdjieff, in one of the talks quoted in Views from the Real World, said, for an exact knowledge, an exact language is required. So I'm going to see if we can make some headway in understanding exactly what is meant by the term identification. And I'm going to lay that on you. I want to hear from you. Please say, and anybody who wishes to participate is welcome to say something now. As many people as feel they have something to contribute, say what you understand identification to mean. What is it we're talking about when we talk about identification? Attachment. Say more. Anything that can come and go. That which does not come and does not go defines what non-attachment or non-identification is. So attachment is with things that come and go. Good. Thank you. To put my wants and needs above others. To think selfishly. So I am identified with myself and place my needs before others. Good. Thank you. More. Identification is when you're taken by any situation, any external situation. And is it only external or can I be taken by internal situations? Internal also, yes. Can you say what would be an example of being taken by an internal situation? Yes, when the situation causes an emotion. So any emotion, I may be identified with an emotion. Yes. What about thought? Oh, yes, thought, of course, and imagination. Anything that steals your attention is identification. Anything which steals my attention, I'm taking some notes here. Anything which steals my attention is identification. Good. Keep going. Anybody else? Self-involvement. Self-involvement. Self-centeredness. Narcissism. Good. Thank you. More. Forgetting myself. Can you say what that means when you say forgetting myself? What does that mean? If I don't remember myself, if I'm not present, then the attention gets stolen. 
So when I'm not present, attention is stolen, and therefore I'm not available to love more. One-centered attention. Can you say more about that? Sure. Living from the mind, thoughts, that type of thing, and thinking that it's all of you. And if you think it's all of you, then it has to be gratified, and you don't really hear from the inner part of yourself. So most human beings live with their attention 100% inside or 100% outside on external causes and sources, both of which are identification. One centered, meaning only from one part of me and all of my attention is taken by some one thing. I'm not aware of more than one thing at a time. Right. Yeah, thank you. Good. Yogi Ram Kumar. More. What about a whole sense of self? Say more about that, can you? Okay, so if somebody stole my Harley Davidson motorcycle and I get upset, I should be able to lose the motorcycle and not feel emotional because it's not a part of me. It's just a motorcycle. It's separate from me. My true me is the essence, and the essence wouldn't have any attachment to the motorcycle. Yeah, thank you. So the law of identification says very simply, I become that which I identify with. Anything to add? A deeply held belief that I'm exclusively this separate being with this body, with this name, with rigid patterns of thought and emotion that I don't think are rigid. At this point in my practice, I find that it is the game to be played. I know very little about Virgil, but some of the videos I've watched, he played the identification rather than it playing him. That's good perception. He played identification with conscience. Yeah. So... Identification is unconscious, mechanical, habitual, and repetitious. To be conscious is to be non-identified. To be present is to be non-identified. The identification in us goes very deep. I'm identified with this body. I imagine this body is me. I believe this body is me. I react in the world as if this body were me. And what my own experience has shown me is that there is no such thing as Red Hawk. That the entity named Red Hawk doesn't exist. That Red Hawk is 100% identification and imagination. I am not that which is named Red Hawk. That which I am has a no name. And to even speak of it is foolish, of course. Words are just a way of getting off the subject. But this is a talk. 
so I'm speaking. But in fact, what I am is an entity, a nameless entity in a human body for a short time. We know the body will die. And so many of us are afraid of death because we are identified with the body. If I'm not identified with the body, the body's death is just another experience passing by. But if I'm identified with the body, then I'm afraid. And when I see others dying, it makes me afraid and uncomfortable. And in our culture, we are a death-denying culture, of course, because we're so identified with the body. So I want to speak about self-remembering, self-observation. It's a single practice with two aspects. It's a single practice with two aspects because the being which occupies this body has two aspects, two characteristics, presence and attention. I am presence and attention in a mammal body for a short time. The practice of presence, which is self-remembering, self-observation, speaks to both of those aspects of the bodily being. Self-remembering invokes presence. Self-observation invokes attention. And it is through the development of conscious attention which slowly, slowly begins to melt the hold that identification has on attention. Attention begins to see how it is unable to remain present for very long. And what captures attention so quickly in me is thought. And immediately, if a thought captures my attention, identified with the thought, imagination takes over and begins to expand on that thought. So I'd like to make a distinction with you between thought and thinking. Thought is merely an electrochemical, biological impulse in the head brain. A thought is an encapsulated electrochemical impulse. When a thought appears in attention, if I'm very alert, I know all of the content of that thought without unwrapping it. The whole content of that thought is immediately apparent. But what happens is with most of us, most of the time, a thought appears, this electrochemical capsule, and thinking begins to unwrap that capsule and unwind it and imagination takes over. If I can hold attention in the body and remain actively still when the thought passes through and see the thought as a fact all by itself and not react, the energy which that thought represents is transformed by the body because I don't interfere. All a thought is is energy in the body. When I don't identify with the thought, when attention can stay in place, in breath and sensation, then thinking doesn't happen. And the energy of that thought is immediately taken by the body. The body knows what to do with that energy how to transform that energy, 
and that energy is transformed into a finer substance. That finer substance not only feeds the being, but it radiates out from the body and feeds the earth. It feeds those entities above us and scale all the way back to our creator. And in this way, we are able to cooperate with the law of reciprocal maintenance. We are fed and we feed others. So then what about conscience? For me, conscience is the only salvation. My refuge, conscience is my hope, conscience is my guide, conscience is my path, conscience is my Lord and Savior, conscience is my breath and my life. The guru, the main function of the guru is to serve as an external conscience for those students until they mature enough to take responsibility for that obligation themselves. Once the practice has matured to a certain degree, conscience awakens. And conscience awakens through self-observation, through suffering. Self-observation is an act of conscience. Self-remembering is an act of conscience. It's a nascent act. That is, it's conscience in its seed form. Self-observation, self-remembering is a self-correcting mechanism. It's a roadmap to conscience. I begin to observe myself and I begin to see how I lie. I begin to see how I pretend to be something I'm not. I begin to see very clearly that I am not what I wish to be, what I pretend to be, what I present myself to be. I am a mass of contradictions. I'm a multitude of eyes, and I identify with those eyes over and over again, and those eyes run my life. And once I begin to see myself clearly, a certain suffering begins in me. I suffer because I see that I say I'm going to do one thing and I do another. I promise one thing and I do the opposite. I'm going to quote Mr. E.J. Gold now. How is it that the machine is able to surprise us with unexpected actions? That we somehow, more than just occasionally, find ourselves doing things we never intended to do? Unquote. I find myself doing things I never intended to do. Things I said I wouldn't do. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, says, Oh, woe is me. I continue to do that which I hate. This is the man who is suffering because he is practicing self-observation. What suffers? What suffers these revelations? I suggest that conscience is what suffers. And that conscience, just awakening, still in its nascent form, its first suffering is shame. And that over a long period of time, through what is called intentional suffering, Self-observation is intentional suffering. Self-remembering is conscious labor. Through long suffering, that shame matures into what's called remorse of conscience. Remorse is transformative. Remorse changes the heart. I quote Mr. Gold again, quote, Why is the machine able to initiate foul deeds 
far from our highest intentions and strongest vows, appalling and even devastating in their totality of personal and impersonal effects without our knowledge or consent. That's identification. That's what identification does. He continues, quote, why is it that even when we are aware of crimes of the machine, we are seemingly unable to exercise even the smallest authority to make the machine obey our supposedly conscious intentions, unquote. Self-remembering and self-observation are the means by which conscience is awakened and begins to surface. The suffering brought about by self-observation is a self-correcting mechanism. It changes the heart. And it is a change of heart, which is real change, which is profound change. I'm going to read two poems from The Way of the Wise Woman. These are poems by Red Hawk, published by Home Press. The Way of the Wise Woman is a source book for the awakening of conscience and for the awakening of the divine feminine within. The first one is number 43 on page 45. These are all 10 line rhymed poems. Number 43. The wise woman is quick to apologize for any wrong she may have done in order to restore relationship. She knows this is how conscience grows. Just as a compass restores a ship to its proper course, conscience is the one way she has to know and actualize the will of God, the messenger from above, which sets her always on the path of love. And number 44, for the wise woman, if everything is food for the soul, then all that happens is good, and she is freed from judging wrong and right, freed from worry and sorrow. Like a good farmer, she plows a straight and steady furrow between yesterday and tomorrow, always feeding conscience, whose insight keeps her on a straight and narrow path. It maintains a loving, peaceful mood. So Mr. Gurdjieff said, for an exact knowledge, an exact language is required. So I'm going to turn to you again and see if we can make some headway on understanding conscience. What do you understand conscience to be and to mean? Anybody who wishes to may speak. What is conscience? We worked with this with the New York Kajif group recently, and I believe they said consciousness is something of the mind, everything all at once, but conscience is of the heart, everything all at once. That's an interesting distinction, isn't it? Conscience comes from feeling then, and it's not the same as morality. Morality is external. Morality is mechanical. It varies from person to person, from place to place, from situation to situation. It varies from country to country, from neighborhood to neighborhood, from family to family, from person to person. And it's from the mind, and it relies on guilt. But conscience is of the heart. That's a very useful distinction you've made. Thank you so much, Yogi Ram Sarat Kumar. So conscience is a feeling. 
and it comes from higher emotional center. Others, what do you say about conscience? I'm curious about what the last speaker just brought up. What's the difference between conscience and consciousness? To me, as you speak about it, consciousness, it's for the whole, whereas the conscience, how I receive it, is that it's each individual divine expression. This is a really useful question. That is, conscience and consciousness, they're not the same thing. Consciousness is all that is. Everything that exists arises in consciousness. Consciousness is what we call God. Consciousness is the source of all that exists. Conscience, this is my experience now, so don't trust me. This is just my experience. But conscience is the way that consciousness manifests in the human reality. So consciousness is love. Love and God are the same, Jesus taught. Consciousness is what we humans call God. So consciousness is love. All that arises in all worlds at all times arises from love. Conscience is the way that love manifests in this world. Does that help? When I think of conscience, I think of having it activated when I've done something that I didn't want to do or something that was unhelpful, something that separated me from myself and other people. That's when conscience arises in me and points me in the direction to go from there. Remorse is what stimulates the next action. And can you tell me what direction conscience points you in? Always in the direction of love. Me too. The only difference between my experience and yours is that in me, conscience is available to me every time I have to make a decision, not just when I've wronged someone or me or someone else, but it always points me towards love, which means that whenever I have a decision to make, I wait and get quiet, still inside, and then I wait until I'm objectively clear. When I'm objectively clear, there's not a lot of noise in my head. There's just a feeling. But the feeling points me in the right direction, and I'm clear on it. There's not a lot of confusion or contradiction. And that happens whenever I'm in relationship. I'll give you an example. This last week, we had three house guests, old, old friends of ours. They stayed with us for four days. And a lot of my emotional reactivity was triggered, my fear of relationship. And when that fear arose, it's an old friend of mine. I know it very well. And when it arose, it was simply an indication for me to get quiet and wait to know what to do, what to say, how to say it, how to act, how to interact, how to be in relationship. And I would wait and I would get a very clear feeling of what to do, what to say, when to be quiet, when to relate. And that's conscience. 
and it guided me throughout this maze that the mind wanted to throw up in my way. That's an example. Thank you so much. God bless you. Yogi Ram Saratkumar. Let me hear from others. Conscience. And you might speak of your experience, too, if you wish. So I want to ask you, Red Hawk, consciousness. I study Buddhism, and it's an aggregate. So can you speak to that? I'll uh, make some effort, and then you can help me, okay? Okay. If somebody asks you that question, how would you answer it? Well, I'm learning. The aggregates are feelings, perceptions, formations, and consciousness. I'm going to say that consciousness is that which is always present, never changing, still, never speaks, and is always aware of everything which is going on. It's always present and always sees everything which I do. So how does that get in the way? It doesn't get in the way. What gets in the way is identification. Identification immediately constricts consciousness to a single point, and I lose all touch with the whole, with the whole of me, with the whole of life, with my surroundings, with the people around me. Identification constricts, reacts, and prevents consciousness from witnessing without judgment. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. It's a wonderful question. God bless you. Yogi Ram Sarat Kumar. How might awareness fall on this field that we're speaking to? I would say consciousness and awareness are the same. And conscience is how that awareness manifests. Awareness cannot manifest. It needs a vehicle to manifest. Awareness just is. In order to manifest, I am the vehicle. Conscience is the third force between consciousness and me. It requires three forces to manifest. That's the law of three. Conscience is the reconciling force between consciousness and human awareness. There's a point in which consciousness becomes content. There's a point at which consciousness manifests through conscience. It doesn't become conscience. Conscience is simply the tool, the vessel, the vehicle by which consciousness communicates with me. I use the word content in there. The moment consciousness moves into form, content is created. Well, the moment form is created, there needs to be some guidance to that form or chaos as a result. Humans are a good example of that. So the moment form is created, there has to be a reconciling force. Otherwise, it's total chaos. That reconciling force, in my experience, is conscience. I like what you've said, though. I think it's important. Thank you. Yogi Ram Sarat Kumar. Does then conscience as a reconciling force become integrity? Conscience is the only real integrity. Conscious is integrity. Without conscience, I have no integrity. It's all pretend. It's all from the mind and therefore a lie. 
So what I want to say is conscience is my willingness to be present to suffering, particularly the suffering that, that I cause. That's really, really lovely. Can you say it again? Maybe. Um, <laughs> so conscience is my willingness to be present to suffering and especially the suffering that I cause. Conscience is my willingness to accept and be present to suffering, period, of all kinds, on all levels. I think that's a really clear statement of the effect of conscience in human life. And it's just lovely. It's clear. Thank you so much. So this brings me to conscience is the most beautiful thing that I have ever been exposed to. Conscience is beauty incarnate. All right. So my experience is conscience never speaks. Conscience is a feeling. It comes from higher emotional center. Conscience invokes wisdom from higher intellectual center. So conscience is the mediator between my ordinary state and higher centers. So conscience never judges. Conscience never criticizes. Conscience never forces. Conscience never demands. Conscience never insists. When I deviate from the path of love, conscience only suffers. Conscience only suffers. And it suffers unless and until I correct my course and restore love, restore relationship. In other words, conscience always only points in one direction towards love. Conscience has no negative side. So when I deviate from the path of love, conscience suffers. And that's how I know I have missed the mark. Conscience is my willingness to embrace or to accept and to stand with suffering of all kinds. Suffering of the earth, which is an enormous suffering now. Suffering of humanity, which is an enormous suffering. Suffering of myself when I deviate from love, which is very painful. Suffering of all kinds. So the midwife of conscience is conscious attention. Conscious attention awakens conscience. And the work is a roadmap to awakening conscience. For example, it talks about external and internal considering. It talks about self-importance, about how easily I'm offended. It talks about lying and buffers, about negative emotions, imagination. And Mr. Lee teaches us in the act of self-observation, ruthless self-honesty, which is conscience at work. I stop lying about myself. I begin to tell the truth about myself. So what we have in the beginning is personality which is the active force in me, and conscience, which is passive in me. That's two forces. Personality conflicts with and blocks, prevents conscience from manifesting. Between those two is a third force, which we call the work. It's a reconciling force. 
It intervenes between personality and conscience. It allows conscience to manifest. Personality is the habit body. Conscience is not a habit. Conscience is a conscious force. And when it matures, a new triad is formed, a new octave completely, in which conscience becomes the active force, personality becomes passive, and love is the neutralizing force between them. This is a good time for more questions. Do you have questions? Is conscience then synonymous with essence? That's a good question. What would you say? Well, they think of essence and personality in the Gurdjieff work, and conscience as the third force. I think of that third force in Beelzebub. It's talked about the clash of the first two forces results in the third force. It's really a good consideration you've just raised, and that is conscience helps essence to grow and mature. They aren't the same thing, in my experience. But you see, essence comes raw and untutored, and it needs guidance in order to grow and mature. And conscience is the guide that helps essence to grow and mature. Yes, that makes sense. And I like what you said about the change in octaves, too, how conscience can become the active force then in the next yeah. octave. That's powerful. And that's really the aim as far into the work as I am, which is not very far. I'm just a beginner and I'm a hopeless idiot. You must understand that much. And here's what I see. I see that the aim of the work is to place conscience in the active position. The great aim of the work is to create beings in whom conscience is the active force. Those are people who will do no harm. Those are people who can help. And we have models of those because, look, we are mammals in the body. And mammals learn by modeling, repetition, trial and error, play, and attention. And modeling is crucial. So our creator would be cruel if it gave us these demands to love one another, et cetera, the teachings of Jesus, and it was impossible for us to do those things. So it provides us with models, Jesus and Buddha, Yogi Ram Sarat Kumar, Mr. Lee, Mr. Gurdjieff. There are many others. These are models, and they serve to show us what conscience looks like when it is the active force. And I'll tell you one of the great revelations in writing the book on self-remembering. See, when I speak of conscience, I turn immediately to Jesus. And Jesus says this amazing thing. He says, not my will, thy will be done. Now, this has been a conundrum for me for most of my life. How can I know the will of God? It's impossible. I can't know it. Ah, but then as conscience began to mature in me, I came to understand that conscience is the will of God in human beings. Conscience is how we access God as humans. Conscience is the will of God acting through me as its vehicle, its vessel, its servant. 
your question has really made me deeply contemplate this. What occurs to me, to put it into language, I guess, it's more of a feeling that conscience is the sense of what's authentic, like what God or the process wants from me. And what I see is that I want to serve myself. But conscience shows me that that's not satisfying. And it lights up an urge to serve something more. Well, conscience is what God wishes from me. I think that's just right. I don't know how you can say that better. Conscience is how Yogi Ram Sharaktabar manifests through me and lets me know what serves. And identification is all about me. It is not about relationship. It excludes relationship. It is a strategy to avoid relationship. So another way of saying it is identification is a strategy to avoid love. Conscience always includes the other. Conscience is always about restoring relationship. And it's how God lets me know what I am being asked to do, what's needed and wanted in any situation, conscience tells me. How do I know what's needed and wanted in any situation? I wait for conscience to feel my way into. So I think we're close to closing time. I want to say with most sincerity how very grateful I am to you who are in attendance for allowing me to work with you and work into these two terribly important life or death situations, identification and conscience. My life depends on me understanding and seeing these two things at work in me and being able to differentiate between the two. Conscience is the truth in any situation. From my own experience, conscience tells me what is true and what is wanted and appropriate in every relational situation. So God bless you. Yogi Ram Sarat Kumar, thank you with all my heart.